Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. If you have a Bible, open up with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Last week, uh, we saw uh, just an important proclamation that was made in our text regarding Christ and his coming kingdom. And uh, this week, we're going to we're gonna kind of look at why that proclamation is important and what it means and who it's about and uh, you know, how it applies to us on earth. And so uh, stand with me. We're gonna read our text this morning, Revelation chapter 12. Beginning in verse one, we read, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of the, of the heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Father, we come before you now and we ask you to speak into our lives, Lord. Use this passage to change and transform us. God, help us to understand your redemptive story and how through the corridor of history, Lord, you were thinking about us individually, so desperate to see us turn our lives over to you, declare you as Lord, and make you our Savior. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that for some of us here, maybe we would return to our first love. Maybe we've forgotten about all that you've done in our lives. For others of us here today, Lord, will you awaken our souls to know you as Lord, as Savior. And yet for others, Lord, will you continue to encourage and help us to press in and press on towards the prize as you tarry on this earth. So we ask you to just come now and do the work that only you can do in our hearts, and we lift it to you now in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Uh, General George C. Patton is considered one of five of the greatest titans of war in American history. He was put in the category with, with such men as George Washington, Whitfield Scott, Robert E. Lee, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, his nickname was, anybody know it? I don't think that was it. <laughs> that was probably it, actually. I, probably his soldiers were like, ah, oh yeah, that's my nickname. What, what's his nickname? Blood and Guts. Old Blood and Guts. You know why? Because he was, he was, uh, he was willing to do whatever it took to gain victory. Anything that, took, that it took. He was willing to do that, and um, he, he was relentless when it came to war, and he sacrificed whatever was necessary. He had a nemesis in 
northern Africa named Erwin Rommel, who was a field marshal in, uh, which is the highest ranking official in the German armed forces. And Rommel led his troops in northern Africa during World War II, and he was seeing great success there. So the U.S. decided to, they, they, they were confronting that situation, and they weren't having success, so they sent patent over there to deal with it. And um, so he, he was sent over to Northern Africa to lead the troops. Little did Rommel know that, that George Patton actually read his book on war strategy. And so, you know, it seemed like it was simple for him because he understood the mind of his enemy. He was one step ahead of his enemy. They couldn't outflank him, couldn't outmaneuver him because he knew what to expect because he had been given the playbook. He had read the story of the mind of this man. And it happens to be that it, the story is told that at one point in this war that they're having, uh, Patent and Rommel are close enough to see eye to eye together and they, and, and Patent locks eyes with him and he yells out to him, I read your book, Rommel, I read your book. This is like epic trash talk when it comes to <laughs> war, folks. The guy sticks his head out of a tank and he's like, hey, I read your book, you know. Uh, the, the point is that he, what he was letting him know is I know what you're thinking, I know your strategies, you will not win this war. Well, like George C. Patton, we too have been given the book relating to our enemy. Our Lord knows him well, knows his strategies, and he is leading us in victory as we fight this invisible war that we're involved in. And so we, we don't have to, uh, you know, try and attempt to gain victory on our own against Satan, folks. It's been handed to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So I wanna talk to you to today about, and next week actually, this is a two-part message um, that I'm entitling Victory Over Satan. Victory Over Satan. What we find in Revelation chapter 12 is sort of this, this big picture cosmic uh, conflict that's been going on since the beginning of time and we, we gain understanding to why it exists and to who the targets are, the players, and all these sorts of things in, in this text. And so um, it's really ultimately about victory over Satan. Uh, what we will see in our text next week that we have victory over the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And so we uh, uh, aren't, aren't fighting for victory, we already have it. We're not, we, if we pay attention to the word of God, then we'll understand the mind of our enemy and how he works. Now before we can really go into this, we need to establish something that you would think is a no-brainer in church, but it is not. And it is this, that uh, whether or not Satan is a literal and real person, you would think like, well, we're in church. Doesn't everybody believe that? No, they don't. In fact, it was um, uh, C.S. Lewis who, who said somewhere in my notes here, uh, he said really there's, there's two, there are two equal and opposite errors in which into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to be, dis, 
to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. So the first thing that we have to face is, is the enemy real? Is he just a symbol of evil? Or is he a literal, real person? Now, uh, you know, if you don't believe that he's a literal and real person, you're at an incredible disadvantage. You don't know your enemy. And he has you right where he wants you. Uh, there, there is that conversation in the church these days. According to Barna, who did a poll relating to whether Satan was a, a symbol of evil or a real person, came to this uh, conclusion in 2009, four out of 10 Christians, when Barna uses the word Christian, not saying so-called Christians, four out of 10 Christians by their biblical definition of what a Christian is, that's 40% strongly agreed with uh, the statement that Satan is not a living being but a symbol of evil, 40% of people. An additional two out of 10 Christians, 19% said they somewhat agreed with that perspective. A minority of Christians indicated that they believe Satan is real by disagreeing with that statement and one quarter, 26% disagreed strongly and about one tenth, 9% disagreed somewhat. The remaining 8% were not sure what they believed about the existence of Satan. Listen, if you don't believe in a literal devil, then it's gonna be impossible for you to understand the war that you're in. And, and there is certainly evil in the world and, and all of that, but it's stemming from somewhere. And there's a specific reason why it exists. And, and, there, and you're the target of it, by the way. Satan was a literal angel who decided to become like God. He wanted to be God, and so he stormed the gates of, of heaven, and he was obviously met, he met his maker, didn't he? That didn't go very well for him. You and I are created in the image of God, whom Satan hates, whom Satan is after, and he wants to, and he targets us because he wants to devour us. He has, he has really, really one, one motive, and that is to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. The enemy is a roaring lion, prowling around, seeking those whom he might devour. He is, his, his motto is to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he wants to do in, in our lives, and if, if we think it's this symbolic of evil, then we're gonna miss a bunch of stuff. Now, th there's that aspect of it, some people not believing in a literal devil, but when it comes to also Christianity, there's people who believe in a literal en enemy, but they have two responses to that. Either C.S. Lewis pointed out one of them, they, they take him too seriously, or some people don't take him serious enough. If you, if you, uh, you know, don't take the enemy serious enough, then you'll be used by him and not even know it. What do I mean? Well, you ever heard the story about Peter? In Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, Here's the account of this situation. From, the time, from that time, Jesus began to, to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from me, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Contrary to popular belief, Satan uses Christians. Satan uses Christians. He uses them to do his bidding. And if we're unaware of his strategies and his acts, we will be unaware when we're being used by him. Listen, we have an innate issue, first and foremost, we're fallen in our nature. We desire to do wrong things, all of us. That's our desire as, as a result of the fall. But Christ came to redeem that. We're born again. So we're, we have a, the living hope living in us. We've been resurrected from the dead and you know the spirit of God lives in us. But we're still prone to being used by the enemy. And if we're not cognitive of that, we'll miss it. The logical question then to ask ourselves is, I wonder how many times I've been used by the enemy. How many times has he used me to speak hatred into somebody's life or to act harshly towards somebody or whatever it is? That is the work of Satan, folks. It's the work of sin. Not to say that Satan's behind every corner because that would be the exact opposite side of where we're not to be that C.S. Lewis talked about is we give him too much credit. We give him, you know, some people, when they wake up in the morning, they start to cast demons out of their eggs. And when their toast burns, they lay their hand on the toaster because it's demonic in nature. That would be to give him too much credit, wouldn't it? The enemy is not around every corner. You know, we aren't uh, adopting the Flip Wilson mentality of the devil made me do it, right? We, were not, we don't adopt that as believers. There's a balance in understanding this, this spiritual war that we're involved in. And uh, we, we need to have an imbalance if we desire to have victory over the enemy. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, we know that God has given us everything that we need to win this battle. And in fact, my Bible says, uh, you can remember it this way, this is the best way to remember this verse. You give the devil a 1 John four by four, right upside the head, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. If you're a believer, you already have victory like we've been talking about. You, you already are in a place of victory. You just have to realize it in your life. So 1 John 4, 4, you know, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Um, all we have to do is walk in the spirit of God as a believer and we will not, A, fulfill the desires of the flesh, which is our fallen nature, but number two, we won't give in to the temptations of the enemy when he tries to sway us and draw us into that place that is dishonoring to the Lord. So we need to have that understanding that Satan is a literal and real person um, and that he's at work in everybody's lives, whether you're a believer or not a believer, he can use anybody. Contrary to popular belief, the enemy are, you know, there are demonic people, there are de demons in this room right now that we cannot see. You might say like, whoa, this guy's crazy. No, I understand the Bible. And here's what I'll tell you is I don't think a demon make, is, is, is uh, uh, you know, necessarily attached to every person or anything like that, but the, the spiritual realm is real. And there is a war going on that we cannot see. And we find it in our text this morning, and that's why I bring this up. But, but as believers, we can have victory, and, and that's what I really wanna focus on. Um, Many consider Revelation chapter 12, verse, chapters 12 through 14 to be the most critical chapters to understanding the book of Revelation because it unfolds for us this cosmic war that's going on and, and the reasons why it's happening and such. It tells, it gives us insight to the devil's fall, to his arch enemies in the world and to 
what his future will look like. It gives us his playbook from start to finish in a nutshell. And um, I'll just let the cat out of the bag. I know some of you are already flipping to Revelation chapter uh, 22 and you're like, well, what happens? I'll tell you, he loses. Just in case you're wondering, he does not win this thing. He loses. Uh, So, um, you know, and, and we'll see how that all works. It's in our text as well how that happens. Uh, the way that it happens is through the cross of Calvary, Jesus coming to, um, to, to redeem mankind and to overcome the enemy and to take back the throne that was lost in the Garden of Eden. I said it last week, but God's kingdom was ripped from the world when Adam and Eve took of that Uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The kingdom of God immediately was extracted from this world and there was separation between man and God. And that separation has continued in individual hearts. But in that moment, the Lord gave us uh, the gospel and we'll talk about that in a minute. In our text, uh, next week we'll get to it, but it's Revelation 12, 11. It tells us that we we have Uh, conquered him, speaking to the enemy, or they have conquered him, and and the they in that passage is speaking about the end times uh, believers who come to Christ during this time, they have overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of the testimony. Uh, And we conquer the enemy through the cross. That's how we conquer him. Some of us think we conquer the enemy by memorizing more Bible verses or by uh, you know, doing, doing you know, good deeds or these kinds of things. That is not how you win the war against Satan. You win the war against Satan by, by hiding behind the blood of Christ. That's how you win the war. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's not funny, but it is kind of that um, there are those in our, our culture even today that will, will think they're, man enough to stand up against Satan. You are not. You stand on your own and you will be devoured, I promise. He is so much more craftier than you. He's got your playbook. He knows your nature. He knows what makes you stumble. He can put the dangling carrot out before you time and time again and you'll keep trying to get it. You're like, whoa, I want that thing. He knows us well. And if we stand any chance of gaining victory, we need to hide behind the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is more powerful than I think we realize. It's more powerful. If you want victory from sin, it's the blood of Christ. You want more power in your life, it's the blood of Christ. It is the answer for that. And you speak that power out in the delivery of your testimony, which is simply to say, God, you've changed my life and I recognize it and I'm gonna tell everybody about it, even the spiritual realm's gonna know that you changed my life. The word of its testimony, you're making that real in your life as you begin to proclaim that. And so it's the blood of Christ. And then uh, we don't make the blood of Christ more powerful, but we just confirm its effectiveness when we share our testimony before other people. John Wolvord, uh, who is, I believe, um, somebody who has got a very good handle on the book of Revelation. I encourage you to grab his commentary and read that through there. It's, it's a little bit older, so uh, you know the, the language is, is interesting. But um, he said uh, in his commentary, the book of Revelation coming to the chapter 12, he said it, it's, this is the most critical chapter to understand. It's the most critical chapter to understand. He said it like this. I think, 
I may say without exaggeration that I have to read or I have read or carefully examined several hundred books purporting to expound the revelation. I've learned to look upon this 12th chapter as the crucial text in regard to the correct prophetic outline. If the interpreters are wrong as to the woman and the man child, it necessarily follows that they will be wrong as to many things connected with them. Therefore, I ask your particular attention as we endeavor to see what light scripture itself throws upon this remarkable vision. And so we have this cosmic war going on. Uh, we have uh, you know, the enemy at work in our lives. We're trying to gain understanding, and we're trying to gain victory over him, but we have to gain understanding of it. And the understanding comes from Revelation chapter 12 in the first six verses. And it tells us about the Savior, and it tells us about who the target is relating to the enemy and these kinds of things. And, and if we wanna gain understanding, if we get this right, the rest of the book of Revelation will make sense. If we get this wrong, the rest of the book of Revelation is not gonna make sense and we're gonna have to navigate through different parts of the passages and try and apply things out of nowhere with no context, no scriptural backing at all. But I tell you, like he said, if you let the scripture interpret scripture and you look into the word of God for the answers to the passages you're studying, you'll find them. And we'll do that here, and we, I believe we will come uh, to the right conclusion relating to these characters. Now, before we dive in, I want to take us backward to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, to that proclamation that was made after the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and it was this proclamation, the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Uh, th this is Jesus giving, getting the nod from the Father now in heaven three and a half years into the tribulation period saying prepare the horse, prepare your armies, it's time. It's time. The Lord is, although he's outside of time and space, he operates on a time schedule. And he tells Jesus in, in this moment, the Lord, the Lord making this declaration that the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our, our Lord. Jesus is ready to now come and take the throne of the world. Um, John describes for us in the passage from last week the, the responses in heaven and on earth. We know the 24 elders fell down and worshiped in gratitude, so thankful for uh, what the Lord has done. And then the nations continued to rage. The nations continued to rage. And what you'll see uh, in the tribulation period, and particularly the last half of the tribulation period, is the nations raging like they've never raged before. The nations raging like they've never raged before. Here, the Christian culture desires for Christ to come back. We long for Christ to come back. We can't wait for Christ to come back because we understand that for us, that is, uh, you know, the kingdom of God. We're entering into the kingdom of God at that point. But for the world, their desire is that Jesus would just go away and leave them alone. Like just leave us alone, let us do our thing even though they would devour themselves because there is no organization in chaos. Evil is evil and evil mounted to evil can, you know, the Sadducees and the Pharisees came together for a moment but it was temporary. You'll see in, in the last part of the, uh, the second coming of Christ when the world rallies together and they'll stand against the Lord 
That's the stupidest thing I've ever read in the Bible. You're gonna stand against Jesus. Man, he's, he's coming back not as the lamb of God, but as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's coming back with a sword. And he's not coming back to be friends with people. He's coming back to take his throne. And there will be bloodshed relating to that. And uh, so, you know, the Lord, the world is raging on even now today. We can see it in our culture. Even in America, man, you can start to see this, this thread of um, the world raging against Christianity. Let's take Christianity out of everything. Let's take God's name off of everything. And before you know it, we won't, ha- our, you know, it won't say in God we trust, I promise. We don't trust in God, that's a lie. You know, and, and one of these days that will be removed, I'm sure. So, you know, our culture is going that way, but, but there's a greater story. The Lord is coming back and he's gonna make everything uh, wrong that is, make everything right that's been wronged. So, as we ended chapter 11, I said we need to pay sp- uh, special attention to the last section of, of chapter 11 where it talks about a specific Jewish element of worship called the Ark of the Covenant the Ark of the Covenant, and, and, I, and I told you last week that um, the Ark of the Covenant is related to Jewish worship. The church has never and will never meet God at the Ark of the Covenant, ever. The Ark of the Covenant is a foreshadowing of things to come, it's a foreshadowing of the cross. We meet God at the cross, we meet uh, the Lord at, the, at Calvary. That's where the blood was shed for our sins. The Jewish nation meets God at the Ark of the Covenant at the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant being this, this box with these angelic hosts, two of them hovering over, looking down, face down into the center of this uh, thing called the mercy seat. The mercy seat being the place where the blood from the the perfect and spotless lamb was taken into the holy of holies. Uh, One guy, one time a year, to make atonement for the sins of the people. It was at the mercy seat that man met with God and sin was dealt with. The Ark of the Covenant is symbolic of uh, reconciliation and communion with God. So, but here's the thing, it's Jewish in nature. We're not running into churches to get to the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for our sins because it's been dealt with on the cross. So our atonement has been made. This isn't speaking about the church at all. And if you've been following with us uh, through this journey in the book of Revelation, I started out with this premise, and I hope you're catching on to it, that from from Revelation chapter six through Revelation chapter 19, it's speaking about the nation of Israel. All of the worship that happens in there, all of the things that happen on earth, all the symbols are Jewish. They're pointing us to the nation of Israel. When you hear about the worship in the church, who the 24 elders represent probably the raptured church, the 24 elders in the church, or the 24 elders are where? In heaven. The saints are where? In heaven. You don't hear about the church in Revelation chapter six through chapter 19 during the tribulation period at all. But you do, you do see the nation of Israel over and over and over again. And I think it, you know, it's important for us to understand as we move into Revelation chapter uh, uh, 12 that the Ark of the Covenant, which was just mentioned, 
as we move into this gives us indication as to what these, the symbols are here and how we are to interpret these things. Um, we know that currently God is not dealing with the nation of Israel. We know that there has been a partial hardening to the nation of Israel. What does that mean? That means that, that God's attention is not on the nation of Israel right now. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, where he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So right now, in this very moment, God is dealing with Gentiles. If you're not a Jewish person, you're a Gentile. So that means God's dealing with you. And how is he dealing with you? By grace, it's the age of grace. God is dealing with us through the cross of Calvary. He's telling us, you know, Christ paid the price for you. And all you have to do is turn away from your sin and turn to God. It's a 180 degree turn and go the direct opposite way. That's repentance and, and believe on what Jesus has done, that he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead, you'll be saved. There is a number of Gentiles that will be saved during this age of grace. That's what this passage is talking about. It's talking about until, partial hardening of the Jews, until what? The fullness of the Gentiles come in. Until the number of Gentiles that God has determined to be saved in this age of grace are saved and at that point in which the, the, the last Gentile comes to Christ, maybe you're here this morning, would you just come to Christ? And I think that would be great because I believe at when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and this is my personal belief, so don't get all offended if you don't believe this, but uh, is that the, the, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the, the church is raptured. I believe that that's what's happening. I know people say like, well, there's nothing else that needs to happen and all these kinds of things. I agree with that. Prophetically, like in terms of all of the events that have been spoken of relating to prophecy, they've happened. We, we're not waiting. Israel becoming a nation was like the, that was the nail in the coffin, you know. So, but, but now there is something though. There's a partial hardening over the Israelites. Will that happen? Will the rapture happen at that point or will it happen sometime in the tribulation? I don't know, but I like to think that the last Gentile gets saved and then we're out of here and God turns his sights back to Israel. And for three and a half years, during the tribulation period, the Jewish nation will be, just be happy-go-lucky. Even though there'll be total devastation going on around them, they'll just be like, we got our temple, we're worshiping, we've made a covenant with the Antichrist and we're worshiping and everything's great and all this kind of stuff. But three and a half years into the tribulation period, the Antichrist breaks his peace covenant with the, with the uh, nation of Israel and it's at that point that this, the scales fall from their eyes, from the Jews' eyes. So that partial hardening all of a sudden is removed and they realize in this moment that Jesus was the Messiah and that the person that they are following now is the Antichrist and they will recognize all this stuff. This will be the turning point in the, um, in the, for the nation of Israel. And as we see in our text that that will, uh, that will result in them fleeing Jerusalem in that moment. But listen, if you believe in replacement theology, if you believe that the church replaced Israel 
then you have major problems with so many of these passages. You can't come to the right conclusion if you believe that. And here's what I would say, is that if you believe in replacement theology, that the church actually replaced Israel, God's done with Israel because they have been so disobedient to the Lord and such and, and turned their eyes away from the Lord and all that kind of stuff. If you believe that God would become unfaithful to his, listen, unconditional promises, meaning he didn't, he didn't say I'm giving you this if you do that. He said I'm giving you this because I am who I am and I can. If you can believe that the church replaced Israel and you believe that the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12 is null and void, I would have zero confidence in my salvation. Zero. I would have zero confidence in any promise of the Bible and, and if I believe that, I probably wouldn't be here today because it, it's basically saying God doesn't keep his promises. God doesn't keep his promises. When you come to the, 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 this text, God is talking about a nation that he made unconditional promises to that he will not turn away from regardless of what they do. He's not gonna say, well, you're just too bad, so I'm not gonna keep my promise to you. Wait a second, God is all-knowing. Did he not see this? Of course he saw it because he prophesied about it. He told this nation all the things that were gonna happen. He told us all that's gonna happen. He knows the end from the beginning. Nothing catches him off guard. He's not, he's not sitting there going, man, those guys, those Israelites, they're really, that's it, I'm done with them. No, because he would have to deny himself and he would be considered a liar at that point and, un, and not trustworthy. But that isn't the case, folks, that he is not that way. He is faithful to Israel, but there's a time frame that God has set aside where he's dealt with the Gentile nations and we see Paul being the one that was been sent to the Gentile nations and when he got saved and all that kind of stuff and he went out and he made, shared the gospel with the Gentiles, right? And now uh, there'll be coming a point in time when God will turn his heart back towards the Israelites and I believe that's a tribulation period, 100%. I don't think the church is here. It doesn't make sense. But as we move into Revelation chapter 12 now, uh, there's some symbols that will give us clarity to understanding this. The, the invisible war we're in, and who it is that Satan is really targeting. Check this out. It begins with a great sign in heaven, verse one of chapter 12, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So after John sees the Ark of the Covenant here, he is drawn to what he says is a great sign in heaven. This is the first of seven signs that we see from this point on in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. We're gonna see here that, that John's, the, the images that he's seen are reflecting back and they're, they're not in chronological order, but in terms of the time frame in which all this happens is midway through the tribulation period, okay? So keep that in mind. So he is, uh, John describes a great sign in heaven, that, that word great in the Greek, you could circle it and write the word mega above it. That's the Greek, it's mega. It means it's, it's an important sign. It's, it's a great sign. It's, it's not just a sign, but it's a great sign. What is the sign? It's, it's a woman. 
Of course that's a great sign. Of course it is because God gave uh, women to the world because we wouldn't be able to function without women in the world, period. Like all I would tell you is that, that the ladies, you guys are awesome and you are the brains of the operation, period. That's all I have to say. And I, I, I know that to be the case and not just in my life, but in many of your lives too. So you guys are super lucky to have your wives. But we're not talking about a physical woman here. We're talking about a symbolic woman. There's been a lot of conjecture relating to who is this woman and, and the Catholic Church, automatically it's Mary, you know, and uh, uh, Mary wasn't pre-existing before she was born. It's not Mary. This isn't speaking about Mary. Uh, the Catholic Church would, would say, of course, it's Mary and all of their art that they have relating to this is points back to Mary. They put her, they have her standing on a crescent moon with 12 stars around her head and such. It's not Mary. Some of you are thinking, I know who it is. Mary, Eddie, uh, Mary Baker Eddy, who is the founder of the Christian science you know, re religion, it's, which is neither Christian nor science, but anyway. Uh, she, not only does she believe that she's the woman in this passage, but she also believes that the dragon is anyone who comes against her false religion. So it's kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> Harry Ironside, theologian, he, he was asked to comment on the idea of Mary Baker Eddy being the woman here in Revelation 12, and he said, I do not need to take up the time of sane people. So I guess we know what he thinks about that. This woman isn't a literal woman, it's a sign, it's symbolic. Um, and, and as we look at this, we, we see that uh, this, this, some say, well, symbolically then, it's the church. It's not the church because if you look at the rest of the text, it doesn't match the church. It's speaking about a woman who's pregnant, who the child down in verse five becomes, or verse seven or whatever it is, becomes actually uh, he, go, he, he saves the world, it's Jesus. I'll let the cat out of the bag, the, the child is Jesus. The church didn't, um, the, Jesus wasn't born through the church, the church was born through Jesus. So it can't, it can't be the church. Um, and we gain better understanding of who it might be by the rest of the description here, that she was clothed in the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Where else have you heard that in scripture? There, there's, you know, this should point us back to a dream that Joseph had in Genesis chapter 37 where these very things are being described. G Genesis chapter 37 verses nine through 11. Then he, um, Joseph, dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars are bowing down to me but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept, saying, um, kept the saying in mind. I love that, con that phrase, his father kept the saying in mind. The idea is he knew something was significant about what was going on here, he wasn't in disbelief, he just didn't understand it, but he hid it in his heart. You know, when, when Mary was met by the angel 
and was told the things she was told. And there was periods of time in Jesus' life where she hid things in her heart. She didn't understand, but she knew in those moments it was significant, and she hid those things in her heart. Um, it's interesting, immediately in the dream, as Joseph tells his father and his mother and those guys about it, his dad gives the interpretation already. His dad says, wait a second. He, it says he rebukes him. Are you telling me that me, your mom, and your 11 brothers are gonna bow down to you? That's, and, and so what he's saying is, you know, the representation, Jacob is the sun in this. Rachel is the moon. The 11 stars are the, uh, the 11 patriarchs, the 12th being Joseph himself. It's, a, it's pointing us back, the imagery is pointing us back to the nation of Israel. The woman in symbolism, if we let scripture interpret scripture, would be interpreted the nation of Israel because the, this is the nation of Israel in Genesis chapter 37. It's the nation of Israel. So it makes sense that this is the nation of Israel, and it will get clearer and clearer and clearer as we go through this. The text goes on uh, to tell us that this woman was also with child, that she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So, so we know that the Messiah comes through the nation of Israel. We know that the Messiah, the, the lineage of Christ, is through the patriarchs of Israel. We know that he is the lion of the tribe of what? Judah. Judah is a nation, one of the 12 nations of Israel, right? So we understand that. Now, John points us to a point in time when the Messiah is about to be born. He's saying she's pregnant, he's about to be born, and it's a period of time where the nation of Israel is experiencing agony and birth pains. And this is pointing back to the birth of Christ, to the, that time frame when they are under the Roman rule, when they're being, they're Roman occupied, they're being oppressed by the Romans and all of that kind of stuff. Why is that happening? We talked about it last week, remember? Daniel chapter two, the statue that he dreamt about, where it said that, you know, the head of gold, the chest of silver, and the, you know, whatever, I don't remember all of them, but the legs of iron, the legs of iron speak of this period of time where the, the nation of Israel is being ruled by the, the Roman Empire. And they were ruthless, folks. They were ruthless people. They, um, they perfected the crucifixion. They knew how to torture people. They were not nice, and they didn't put up with a lot of guff. So it was in this time period that this promised child that the nation of Israel would produce this child and uh, and when it does when when that child is produced it won't it will be matched with all kinds of satan satanic um you know strategies and targets to to snuff him out and kill him and we'll see that in a second um when when it when it comes to the 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 kingdom of God and the nation of Israel they were longing for this moment you know the disciples, when, when Jesus showed up, it's interesting that Andrew, if you read his account, he went back to Peter and he said, we found the Messiah. How did he find the Messiah? Because they were looking for him. Do you know the nation of, of Israel during this time when Jesus did show up, they understood prophecy to the point that they were looking for the Messiah to show up during this time? 
and they missed him. They missed him. Uh, that just goes to show you, you can have incredible knowledge of scripture and you can, you can be able to quote it and all that kind of stuff and you can still miss the Lord working in your life. That is amazing. But the disciples, when they then became the disciples of Jesus, they kept asking him this question. When is your kingdom going to come? When is the kingdom gonna come? We're waiting for the kingdom to come. Let's just get the show on the road here. Let's get the kingdom adopted because they had a misinterpretation all the way through the, the forefathers of Israel that there was gonna be one coming of the Messiah and that was it. They missed the fact, they, they missed you know, um, Psalm 22 and Psalm 16 and Isaiah 55, 53 and these passages that talk about the suffering servant and the fact that the Christ would be crucified. They thought there was one Messiah that would come one time and he would institute his kingdom. So they kept asking Jesus that question. How much longer, Lord, you're gonna institute your, your kingdom? And it wasn't until his second coming that that would happen. The pregnancy of this woman here, this points us back to prophecy, to the Christmas passage, you know. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, for unto us a child is born, unto us a, a, a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to be established. It will establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This was the prophecy they were hanging on, folks. They knew a child was coming. They knew that he would save the world. They knew that when he came, that he would institute an everlasting kingdom, that he would rule and reign from forever and ever. They understood that. They knew that, and yet, they missed him. In this moment, when the Messiah showed up, there was immediate oppression uh, and persecution of uh, you, you know, the nation of Israel. And it came through a man named Herod the Great. Immediately, we find that, that they're met with that satanic op opposition. Um, and when we think about the pregnancy of this woman, it also points us back to the promise that God gave in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, which is what is called is the proto-evangelium. It is the very first time that the gospel is presented in the, in the word of God and it's God giving the gospel to Satan. Isn't that interesting? Why is God giving the gospel to Satan? God's giving the gospel to Satan so that he knows the game plan. Wait a second, does that make sense? Why would God give Satan the game plan? Because he can't lose. Because he cannot lose. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, it says, uh, the Lord speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we know that obviously the enemy knows where this promised child is gonna come from, through the nation of Israel. And so from day one, he's oppressed the nation of Israel. He's persecuted the nation of Israel. Tried to wipe out the nation of Israel, folks. Do you understand why the nation of Israel is important to Christianity? 
it's because that's where the Messiah would come. Why, does, why do we say, hey, we need to, um, we need to pray for Israel and, and we need to look to Israel and all these kinds of things? Because the entirety of the redemptive story is weaved through the nation of Israel. That's why we, we look to the nation of Israel. It's important for us to understand that and that's how we know where we're at in a prophetic state. We, all we have to do is look to Israel and we look to Israel, we see what's going on in Israel and we understand, okay, now I know where we're at. Now I understand where we're at. I don't know if you're paying attention but there is um, something that's sort of lining up in scripture right now uh, relating to the nation of Israel and the war that's going on in Russia and the Ukraine. I'm not saying that that's, uh, you know, that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is lining up and gonna happen immediately. What I'm saying is that these are the kind of things that do happen. And you know what? If we're like the Jews back in the day that have such great understanding of the scriptures but we don't look around and we don't apply it, we'll miss it too. I don't know how we can miss that but we may. So we just pay attention. We look to the nation of Israel and these sorts of things. The Lord gave the gospel immediately. He's talking about the gospel in Revelation chapter 12. Though the invisible war that we're in, the only way for us to win is through the gospel. It's through the promised child of Jesus Christ. When Jesus showed up, um, he said in John chapter 12, verses 31 through 32, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I, when I'm lifted up on the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus said, I am going to crush the enemy. Just like Genesis 3.15 said, I am going to crush your head. And you know what? All of hell rejoiced when Jesus was crucified on a cross and he was laid in a grave. You know that? The devil, you ever seen Chronicles of Narnia? In that moment when, the, when the, the, you know, Aslan walks into the, the demonic pit and they all just begin to you know, take him limb by limb and, and kill him. And they're rejoicing in that moment. And then they, they, they come up against the sons of Aslan you know, and they're, they're, they're ready to do battle. And they think they're victorious already. And then Jesus shows up. Aslan is on the move, right? And he shows up. That's the picture of the gospel. That's exactly the way it worked. I think the enemy thought, oh, we, we won. You didn't win. You didn't win because on the third day he rose again from the dead. And then our, our scripture tells us he ascended to heaven. The church was birthed. The gospel went forward and millions of people have been affected by that and millions of people have come to Christ and will be in heaven as a result of that, folks. It's an amazing plan that God has put in place. But it all started, listen, with a promise that God gave to the nation of Israel that he has been faithful to forever and will be faithful to forever. John goes on here and he sees another sign here in verse three. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head seven diadems. His table swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that uh, when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled to the wilderness where she, had been, uh, where she has a place prepared by God 
in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So the second of the seven signs that we find in the last half of the tribulation period uh, here is a red, a great red dragon, a mega red dragon. Now I know some of you guys are like going, yes, I knew dragons were real. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go watch now how to train your dragon because in heaven, I want a dragon, right? This is not a literal dragon. I hate to break it to you, but it is not a little dragon. It is symbolic of Satan. How do we know? Because it tells us that in verse nine. That's how we know. Scripture, let, let scripture speak. Let scripture interpret scripture. It tells us that this is a reference to the devil and the ancient serpent. We talked briefly about this last week, but this is a reference to Daniel chapter seven the beast, the fourth beast that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter seven is this beast. It's this beast. We see, um, you know, John gives us some different, uh, a little bit different, uh, you know, descriptions in terms of uh, some other things that maybe Daniel didn't, didn't actually pin, but it's the, the beast. It's the same beast. And here we find um, in Revelation chapter 12, we find that this, this red dragon has seven heads, these seven heads represent the seven world empires that will exist under Satan's rule. We have the Egyptian uh, empire, the Assyrian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Medo-Persian empire, the Grecian empire, the Roman empire, and then finally the seventh, the revived Roman empire. And so those are the, the seven heads on this dragon. They are satanic. The rulers of these nations are satanic. They have been operating under the, the influence of the dragon. That's the point. If you don't think that there's a satanic influence in, in, in you know, rulers and, and those sorts of things, man, you're missing stuff because there is major satanic influence in these things. But these seven rulers, then it, then it goes on to tell us that there were 10 horns we know from Daniel chapter seven that those 10 horns are representative of the revived Roman army, 10 rulers that will come up. We'll see in Revelation chapter 13, the seven diadems, which are royal crowns that represent power and authority. Those crowns are transferred from the seven heads to the 10 horns, to the 10 leaders that will rise up during that time uh, and, and will rule in this revived Roman army and our empire. And then we know from of Daniel chapter seven that the little horn will rise up and he will rule all of them. And who is that? It's the Antichrist. And so we know that there, there have been seven uh, uh, ruler, uh, seven empires that have been uh, ruled by Satan. There will be 10 horns that will show up one day with 10 rulers. They, they exist, I promise you already. They exist and they probably have existed in this Roman, uh, revived Roman Empire, and, and, um, and we'll see that there will be a little horn that will rise out of those 10, and he will be the Antichrist himself. John now points us back to the fall of Satan here, which is interesting, as he tells us that it was this great dragon that he, with his tail, he swept a third of the stars of heaven, stars representing angels in heaven, a third of the stars uh, are, are angels of heaven, and they were cast to the earth. And you, you, you know the story there that Satan rose up and said, I'm gonna become like the most high God and such. You can read it in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. That is the account 
that we have in the word about how that went down. You can read it later. Jesus summarizes it really simply for us in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. No contest. No contest whatsoever. It was not... There, it was not a big deal. God took care of it immediately. Satan was leading a mutiny in heaven. He was leading a mutiny in heaven, and he swayed. I don't know how you do this. This guy could sell, you know, uh, ketchup to a woman in white gloves or something, I don't, how, whatever other analogies you have there, but he is so slick that he could sway a third of the angels to go with him. Is that crazy? These guys have been in the presence of God. They understand the, the majesty of the Lord, the power of the Lord, and they still can be swayed. Wow, that's amazing. He is good. Um, but he takes a third of the angels with him, and they're cast down on the earth. Now, this casting out is not a final casting out. We're going to see next week that there is a final casting out, but it's not until mid-tribulation where Satan is no longer allowed to step foot in heaven. Currently, as we speak, Satan, his dominion of heaven, meaning his living place in heaven, has been cast out of that. He doesn't live in heaven. He doesn't reside in heaven. He's been cast out of it, but he does visit heaven. He does have access to heaven, to the throne of God. And it's there that, you know what he does? He makes accusations against you. He makes accusations against you. We have an adversary, folks, and what he says is probably not, is probably true, by the way, but here's what I'll tell you. There is also an advocate who stands up in the moment and he says, I paid the price, and he, he stands in the gap for you. He stood in the gap for you on the cross, and he stands in the gap for you over and over and over as the adversary comes into the throne and makes accusations against you. The Lord says, the Lord stands up for you. And he said, I paid the price for you. Listen, Satan, he has not only led a mutiny in, in heaven, but he's leading a mutiny on earth. And he is drawing, he, he's strong enough to draw a third of the angels from heaven. He's certainly able to draw man to himself and to to rise up an army of human beings who would shake their fist at God and say, I don't want anything to do with you. And he's doing that. He was cast down from earth, but there will be a final casting out, which we'll talk about next week, and he will never be able to uh, make, it, make rounds in heaven again. It goes on here to, to talk to us. John tells us that, um, that as after this, this happened, Satan in this moment is now waiting for the nation of Israel to, to for the woman to, to give birth to the child so that he can crush him, so that he can kill him. Satan has been following the nation of Israel closer than anybody. And he's been, he's been tailing them the whole time trying to figure out who is the, 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 the vessel that God is going to use to bring the promise uh, Messiah into the world. And he's been, he's been after the nation of Israel forever. You see that in the very first, uh, you know, Genesis chapter four, right after the fall. Influences Cain. Cain kills his brother Abel. Maybe, maybe Abel's the bloodline, I'll kill him. This other dude certainly isn't because he doesn't, he cares about himself, he doesn't care about God, so it's maybe that one, I'm gonna kill that guy. And he fails at the attempt. He goes on down the road. Maybe it's Joseph. Joseph is 
sold into slavery by his brothers. They want him dead. They don't want him around anymore. Fails in that attempt. You know, we go on and we see that, you know, the, the enemy sways the world to such a degree that God floods the earth. In Genesis chapter six, guys, floods the earth, but God preserves the bloodline. Go on and, and you have Israel saying, I want a king, and so they put a man king in there, uh, Saul, who they've chosen to be the king, and he tries to kill the real king, David, satanically influenced. And the, and the stories go on and on and on and on, all the way up through Jesus coming to the world and, and Herod standing. What about Haman? You know, in, in the Medo-Persian, you know, he wanted the Israel's dead. The anti-Semitic um, mindset comes from Satan himself because he understands the promise that's been given through the nation of Israel, folks. And so here we're being told that from day one, Satan has been waiting looking over the nation of Israel, waiting for that bloodline to reveal itself so that he could kill the Messiah, and he did. Through the religious leaders, through the people that are supposed to be following God, this guy could deceive them, he can deceive you. Listen, this is not somebody we mess with on our own. We need to stand behind the blood of Christ. We have victory, yes, but through the blood of Christ, not on our own. I think, I think not enough Christians know their authority, but some think they have too much authority. Listen, I stand behind Christ. He's the one that fights my battle. It, the Satan's been waiting for this moment, and, and he did. When, when, when Jesus died on the cross, he rejoiced. Jesus rose again from the dead, and it says here that he was caught up into heaven, caught up to, the, to God and to his throne. He wasn't... He wasn't a creation of God. He was ruler before he came to earth and he returned to his throne. He is God in the flesh. Satan must have thought in the moment that um, Jesus ascended you know, as the failure, but he didn't. He ascended as the victor. And he has he he uh, overcome the enemy. N next we find here... Uh, a moment where this is speaking three and a half years into the tribulation period where John goes on to say, then the woman, uh, she, will, uh, she will flee into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is midway through the tribulation period. Again, the, the Antichrist breaks the peace treaty with Israel um, 12, one, for 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years using a 360-day calendar. 300, for, 300, for three and a half years, the last three and a half years, God will protect the nation of Israel as they flee into the wilderness. Why? Because he has a plan for Israel. I don't see how you can come to any other conclusion, folks. He has a plan for the nation of Israel. Jesus talks about them fleeing, about the, the Jews fleeing in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 22. You can read that later. Um, and, and the enemy will try to come against them even in the wilderness, but it says it's a place God prepared for them. God isn't operating reactively. He already knows what's gonna happen. He's already gone before them. Many people believe that the place that God has prepared for the Jews uh, is, the, is a place in Jordan um, called Petra where there are caves and rocks and such and um, uh, you know, you know, do your research on that, and there, there, are, there is some biblical evidence for that, but here's what I know. God has prepared a place. 
And that should strike a chord with you as a believer because not only will God has prepared a place already for the Jews who will flee three and a half years into the tribulation period, but Jesus went away to go prepare a place for you and that where he is you might be also. But this isn't talking about us, this is talking about the nation of Israel, but the application for us is Jesus has prepared a place for me too and he wants you to be with him. But you can only be with him if you call upon him as Lord and Savior. You can't come to him any, any other way. So you gotta call upon him. And what we know here is this is God saying, I keep my promises. I keep my covenants. When I tell somebody I'm gonna do something, I do it. If, if you don't leave here with anything else today, you should leave here with an incredible confidence that God is gonna do exactly what he said he was gonna do for you through his word, that we can take him at his word. During the tribulation period, God will focus on the nation of Israel. And the enemy has been after them from day one because he understands their significance and importance. I think there's a good bit of people in, our, in the church today that don't understand this that don't understand how important, how vital the nation of Israel is to the entire redemptive story. They are the people that God promised the Messiah through. And, and so God won't turn his back on them. And it, that should give you great confidence this morning to know that God will not turn his back on you either. He will keep his promises and he will do whatever he said he was gonna do in your life. I wanna end with this story and uh, Queen Victoria of England was talking to Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, and she asked him this question, what evidence can you give me that God exists? The Prime Minister thought about it for a moment, and he replied, the Jew, your majesty, the Jew. The nation of Israel is living proof that God exists, folks. They were disbanded from their land for over 2,000 years, but May 14, 1948, by God's providence and by his orchestration, the, the people of Israel became the nation of Israel again. And that is the confidence you and I can have in the gospel, folks. He will keep his word, amen? Father, we thank you for this time together this morning and we thank you for just a reminder of how great your word is, Lord, that we can take your word to the bank. And that is a great comfort to us this morning, Father. We thank you for giving us this insight into the invisible war that we face. Lord, the satanic influence and the demonic activity in our world today, and yet we, have, we fret not because we have a king who is overcome and it's him that we allow to fight our battles. We stand behind the blood of Christ, and that is enough. And so we ask you today, Lord, as we leave this place, that we can be settled in our own hearts and our minds, Lord, of where we stand with you. You're a redemptive God. From day one, you have told a redemptive story about a savior who would come not for people who are well, but for people who are sick, and you would make us well. 
And so we wanna leave with this in our minds this morning, God. Thank you for all that you've done in our lives. We pray as we live out this week coming up, Lord, that you give us opportunities, God, to, to just share the testimony of what you've done in our life. And uh, we do pray, Father, for the battles that we face and the, the, the trials that we are in, Lord, that you give us strength to endure, that we look to you, God, to uh, empower us to be those who you're calling us to be in these moments. And Lord, we wanna pray just for the conflict that is going on, Lord, with Russia and the Ukraine, Lord, and we wanna lift that situation up to you. And Father, we just pray that you would be with uh, those, the innocent people that are involved in this war, Lord, for the soldiers that are fighting this war, God. Um, for the leaders who are involved in it, for all those who are on the sidelines watching, Lord. We just pray for your spirit to do a work and that as much as the enemy would love to devour both sides because he cares about nobody, Lord, would you, re- would you save and redeem and draw people through this situation and circumstance? We pray for our brothers and sisters over there who are enduring you know, horrific things, and we ask you to just meet them where they are. And so, Lord, we fill us with your spirit. Help us to be who we're called to be in these last days, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us? Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.